Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Thanks be to God. So it's a pretty common story that successful and influential people uh, often have someone working with them, uh, alongside them, supporting them behind the scenes. Uh, and their work is often vital and foundational, uh, and yet they often don't take center stage. There's often someone else that tends to be up front, uh, but because their work is often not center stage, uh, they can be misunderstood or maybe not even properly recognized. And I start with that idea because, unfortunately, Depending on one's relationship to or experience with the Christian faith, the work of the Holy Spirit, for some, falls into a similar kind of category. We might not uh, understand, uh, or we might understand rather, that the, the Holy Spirit is you know, the third person of the Trinity. Uh, we know that the Bible speaks of and, and teaches about the Holy Spirit, and we know that the work of the Holy Spirit is important, but because... Uh, oftentimes there is not adequate amount of time that is given to understanding the work of the Holy Spirit, misunderstandings, and even just ignorance about that work can begin to creep in. But understanding the work of the Spirit is actually of greatest importance as it's the work of the Spirit that applies all the great truths and all the hope of the Christian faith, including salvation. Now today we're going to uh, continue our series that we've entitled NUMA, Understanding the Work of the Spirit. Uh, And for the rest of the summer, we're going to be taking a look at a holistic view and understanding of the NUMA of God, the Spirit of God, uh, and the ways the Spirit of God works. Uh, Last week we considered that the Spirit, who is at work in creation past, uh, is also at work today in creation present and is, uh, will continue to work into creation future, uh, bringing about order out of chaos and renewing creation until one day uh, Christ returns and we experience a creation that's been liberated from the bondages of decay. Uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to be taking a look at maybe some of the more controversial uh, re- uh, aspects of the work of the Spirit, taking a look at uh, the, um, the supernatural gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues and healing and prophecy. What are we to make of all of those realities. But today, we're going to be continuing our series by looking at another aspect of the Spirit's work, not only in the renewal and restoration of all things, not only in the the supernatural things that maybe we don't fully understand, but also the work of the Spirit in our renewal, our restoration. Today, we're going to look at the work of the Spirit in salvation. Now, here in our passage, the first part of our passage, we return to the book of John, uh, looking at some of the words of Jesus. If you know, we were uh, in the book of John for many, for many weeks. Uh, but here in the passage that we just heard read, uh, we're going to look at Jesus, some of Jesus' last words before his, uh, to his disciples before he goes to his death. And in these words, we find great depths of insight into the work of the Spirit, especially as it relates to the salvific work of Jesus and what he sought to accomplish. So, to see these great depths, let's consider from this passage the Spirit's role, the Spirit's call, and the Spirit's application. 
Okay, let's look at each of those. So first, the Spirit's role. First, uh, so to begin, let's consider uh, a really striking aspect of what Jesus says here in the passage. So if you remember, again from our John series, Jesus is preparing for his death, and he knows that he will not be with his disciples much longer. Uh, They have seemingly given their lives to following him, and now he's talking about leaving. And so as you could imagine, they are likely feeling quite disoriented by the whole thing. And so with that, Jesus says in verse 7, he says, But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Let me pause there. Now, why is that so striking? Well, for those of us who have never seen Jesus in the flesh or seen the miracles of Jesus actually take place, we should first acknowledge that according to Jesus, we are in a better situation than the disciples were who did get to see those things in the flesh. Because there are many who would assume that if I could just see Jesus, or if I could have experienced the miracles that he performed, or if he were to just show up right now and do those same miracles again, then, of course, I'd follow him and believe in him. A couple of things to that, though. First, just for clarity, there were many at the time of Jesus, who saw Jesus' miracles and also, at the same time, did not believe. Just for example, consider Judas. Judas was a man who had a front row seat to Jesus' miracles, but in the end, proved himself to be a traitor. Or you have Peter, a beloved disciple of Jesus, who denied ever knowing Jesus when things got hard. Plus, Jesus was unjustly killed at the insistence of religious leaders who were quite aware of all of his miracles. In fact, the following that Jesus had established and the things that Jesus claimed about himself were precisely why they wanted him killed. So, we ought to be very clear-headed about our assumption that we would obviously have followed Jesus if we had just seen his miracles. It's not that obvious. And there are many examples of those who did see it and still did not believe. But also, more to our point today, is that according to Jesus, it's actually better that he not stay. It is better for his disciples, and again, seemingly for us, that Jesus did not remain present in the flesh here on earth. Why? Because, again, look at uh, verse 7, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. And then he goes on, unless I go away, The advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So the sending and the presence of the advocate is greater than Jesus being present with us in the flesh. Why? Well, the one who Jesus refers to here as the advocate, in verse 13, he later on calls the spirit of truth. Through John, throughout John, the book of John, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the advocate numerous times. That the role of the Spirit is to serve as this advocate. What does that mean? Well, that word advocate in Greek is the word paraclete. Now, this word, depending on the Bible translation that you might use, can also be translated as counselor or helper or comforter, all of which fit properly the context. But the word, it literally means to to call, to be alongside. And it was a word that was used to describe a legal assistant that presented a case and was an advocate 
who ensured the right judgment call was made in a trial. I mean, even with the translation, for example, counselor, which some Bible translations use, we understand that idea. We still call lawyers counselors even today. So Jesus promises that when he goes, the advocate will come. The one who will ensure that a proper and right judgment call is made. That the spirit of truth is to come. And we see that's coming at the day of Pentecost. Now we're going to look more closely uh, at the day of Pentecost in coming weeks. But in the book of Acts, we see the spirit come. And as a result, we see the disciples radically changed by the coming of this advocate. You know, for example, again, when Jesus was standing trial, Peter who was one of Jesus' closest followers, denied Jesus three different times, claiming not to know him. But then after the Spirit descends, that same Peter gets up in front of thousands of people to preach a sermon of repentance and faith in Jesus, all of which was empowered by the presence of this advocate, the one who was making a case for something. See, Jesus in the flesh, he came to accomplish a particular work which, of course, would include his death. But as a person in the flesh, he could not possibly be present the same way the Spirit could be. Why? Because the Spirit of God, the omniscient, um, uh, omnipresent Spirit, is able to dwell with us all in a way that a human, fleshly Jesus could not. And so Jesus sent to everyone who would follow him this spirit, this advocate who presents for us all this profound and far-reaching case. Now, with that in mind, what exactly is it that the spirit then is advocating for? Again, the, the spirit, this advocate, is, is making a case for a right and proper judgment call and is doing so in this far-reaching way. What then is that call? What is that case being made? Well, let's consider that. Second, Look at what the Spirit advocates for. Again, I'm going to start in verse 7. But truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 8. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit, in his work as an Advocate, proves the world wrong about three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, the advocate is making a particular case for what ought to be believed about sin and righteousness and judgment. We ought to find it interesting that of all the things that Jesus was most concerned about, things that we are to be convinced of, to have a proper view of, Jesus' concern is that we have a proper view of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The reason is, is that if we need to be convinced that the world is wrong about these things, we should assume that in some way we have not held proper beliefs about those three things. And that we need to be convinced that our instinctual understanding of those three things is wrong. And the role of the Spirit as the advocate is to call us away from the world's perspectives and toward truth. But to do so, the Spirit will have to confront us with some ideas that are often not considered by many. 
So let's look at each of those and to see why Jesus puts those in front of us and why the Spirit needs to convince us of our instinctual understanding. First, look at sin. Look at uh, Jesus continues in in, uh, verse 9. He says, about sin, and the reason why we need to be convinced about sin is because people do not believe in me, Jesus says. So the conception of sin is, in and of itself, a problematic idea for many. Because sin assumes that there is some standard that we are not meeting. Sin assumes that there is something that we ought to be doing or not doing. Sin assumes that there is something we ought to, uh, uh, that there is something wrong with who I am and what I do. Sin and the idea of sin assumes a lot about us. And especially in contemporary times, we struggle to embrace that whole notion. We struggle to embrace the whole notion that there are standards to which we are obligated that is not rooted in my own conceptions of things, but there is a standard that I'm obligated to that exists outside of me. Because we so often highly prize our autonomy in in choosing our own way, which is often, by definition, sin. Sin by its nature desires to elevate my own desires, my own perspectives, my own pursuits, and my own definitions about what is good, right, and true. Above that, of even Jesus. And so Jesus is saying here, the Spirit needs to come and advocate a particular perspective on sin because people don't believe in me. Now, we've talked about this before, but what are we to make of the fact that many seem to believe in Jesus, have an affinity for Jesus, and yet so often Jesus says things like this. Jesus has said things like, people will hate me, and so they will also hate you. Jesus is saying here, people don't believe in me. They don't believe in Jesus. But my question is, as I think about that, who hates Jesus? I mean, it'd be hard-pressed to find many in any world religion or even secular society that would say, I hate Jesus. In fact, most of the world's population would say in some way or another, they believe in Jesus. So what is Jesus talking about? Who hates him? Who doesn't believe in him? Well, if our belief in Jesus is not bringing us into a confrontation with our ideas about sin or our lack of living in alignment with the standards of God, then we are likely not believing in the true Jesus. Instead, we believe in a Jesus of our own making. The real Jesus confronts us in sin, recognizing, yes, that there is something fundamentally wrong with me in what I do, the way I think, the way I treat people, the way I view the world, that there's something broken in all of that, and that brokenness is sin. And the ongoing work of the Spirit is to call you, advocate for you and for me to turn away from sin and instead believe in Jesus, the true Jesus. And who then is that true Jesus? Well, we get a clue into understanding what the true Jesus looks like in Jesus' continuing words. So in verse uh, 10, Jesus continues saying that righteousness, people do not believe in righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. So the Spirit is advocating for a particular view of righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. All right, what's going on there? Well, remember... Jesus is about to go to the cross. 
And he's heading to the cross because the religious leaders of the day believed Jesus to be unrighteous, deserving of death even. They believed that the cross was actually a condemnation of Jesus. But Jesus says, while I'm going to die on the cross, it's not going to be because of my unrighteousness, but rather because of my righteousness. And where is that in verse 10? Well, Jesus would be vindicated by the accusations of unrighteousness by the fact that he will be resurrected. And where is he going to go? He's going to go to the Father. Going back to the Father is the key to understanding Jesus' righteousness because being in the presence of the Father is a place that no one could go if they were unrighteous. And so what we have here is Jesus reminding us that unless we are perfectly righteous like him, we cannot know the Father or enter his presence. And so the advocate is reminding us and attempts to convince us that unless we are righteous, such exclusion from the presence of the Father is going to be our fate. But then as a result of all of this, right, the sin, the unrighteousness, the consequence of that exclusion, according now to verse 11, brings us to the third thing that the Spirit's going to call us toward and convince us of, is this idea of judgment. And Jesus says that we need to be convinced of this idea of judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. What's going on there? Well, to be on the side of Jesus... Uh, I'm sorry, to not be on the side of Jesus, to not believe him by believing in sin and unrighteousness that brought him into the world to begin with means that we are on the side of the prince of the world, the evil one who already stands condemned. And so the advocate reminds us and attempts to convince us that there is judgment. Again, a notion and an idea that difficult for us to sometimes get our heads around, that as a result of sin, as a result of unrighteousness, there is judgment coming. And it requires a spirit to convince us of that coming judgment. And the advocate, this is the work of the spirit, the advocate is attempting to convince us of truth regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. And here's what the spirit is calling us to believe about all of those. Here is what the voice of God through the Spirit desires for us to hear. And it pulls all of this together. Is that Jesus came to live a life of perfect righteousness. That Jesus came to die on the cross because of our sin and unrighteousness. That he came to rise again and ascend back to the Father. He came to provide the way away from judgment and into blessing. And the Holy Spirit, the advocate, is the one who convinces us of all of that. The Spirit's role in salvation is to convince us that we need this salvation work of Jesus. And to deny the advocate, to deny what the advocate is trying to convince us of, is what Jesus calls blaspheming the Holy Spirit. In Mark 3 and Matthew 12, Jesus says that that sin is unpardonable because the unpardonable sin is the sin of refusing to believe our need for Jesus. It is to hear the Spirit speak of sin, righteousness, 
and judgment, but then to call the spirit a liar by refusing to accept his advocacy. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And this is where my, my heart is burdened for myself and for you. The fact that the advocate is seeking to prove the world wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment means that the world is also making a case before you. The advocate is making one case, but the world is making one as well. The Spirit might be calling us away from the world, but the world is calling us back toward itself. And as Jesus noted, there's a prince of this world, the evil one, making the case contrary to the case being made by the advocate, by the Spirit. And how often, or how does the, uh, the, the evil one often make that case? Well, one of the easiest ways for the, the evil one to make this case is to do the same thing that has been done ever since the garden. I mean, since the garden, the evil one has been trying to convince us to pull away from the Lord and toward the world by simply questioning God's intention, God's character, and God's trustworthiness on these kinds of issues. I mean, if you recall in the garden, the serpent never told Adam and Eve that God was a liar. Never said that directly. Rather, he simply posed some questions. I mean, did God really say not to eat from that tree? Did he, you know, he only really said that to you because he knew that if you do, you'll be just like him, you know. I mean, these deceptions were never super overt, but they were questioning, undermining the character, the trustworthiness of God. And those same deceptions are constantly placed before us. And they are always contrary to the call of the advocate. I mean, think about the ways that the, uh, the evil one, the enemy, might try to allure us away from the voice of the advocate and toward the world. I mean, what feels most alluring to you that God would be, uh, would be contrary to God's intentions for you? I mean, when, when you hear the evil one speaking, what would the evil one say to you? You know, did, did God really say fill in the blank, whatever that might be. Can you really trust God in, in that area of your life? You know, I really don't think God wants what's best for you. I mean, would he really want something for you that isn't aligned with what you want for yourself? Is that what a good God would want for you? In fact, if you obey God and obey his law, you could actually be doing harm to yourself by not living your best life, not experiencing the fulfillment available to you. Sin? What an archaic idea. Righteousness? Just do what makes you happy. Judgment? A God of love could never be a God of judgment. These are subtle yet deceptive lies that distract us from the voice of the advocate who seeks to present to us truth on issues of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But though the deceiver whispers these subtle yet insidious lies, it's also the case that the advocate will constantly be calling us away from those lies, making a particular case 
for sin, righteousness, and judgment, all of which are dealt with in the work of Jesus. Look at verse 12. It says this, I have much more to say to you, more than I can now bear. Verse 13 goes on, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. What's fascinating about this passage is that the spirit of truth speaks that which we need to hear from God, that which will glorify Jesus. The advocate, the spirit, makes much of Jesus before us so that we might turn from the lies of the enemy and instead embrace the truth of gospel hope. This is the work of the Spirit, making a case for us about sin, righteousness, and judgment, and making much of Jesus before our eyes. But after the Spirit has made this case, what happens now as we believe the case being made? Because the consequence of our belief in what the Spirit is presenting is frankly beyond complete comprehension. And yet it's part of what the Spirit does which brings us finally to the Spirit's application. It's the Spirit's application, and I'll explain to you what I mean by that, that is the decisive moment of our salvation. Look at the uh, other passage that I included from Romans 8. Paul, uh, in this chapter, um, kind of sums up so much of what we've been talking about now to see how, as the Spirit has made a particular case, for the work of Jesus, as the Spirit seeks to glorify and emphasize the work of Jesus, what then happens as we believe that case that was made, okay? Paul puts it this way, starting in verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and, anyone, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. I love this passage. So much can be drawn out from this passage. But do you hear what Paul is saying? Remember, the Spirit is convincing us about certain truths about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Paul is saying that when we have the Spirit living in us, the Spirit of Christ, he says, though we will experience death because of sin's effects, that the Spirit gives us life, in verse 10, because of righteousness. What is happening there? How does righteousness lead us to life? Well, what righteousness is this? 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us that because Jesus becomes sin, we can now become the righteousness of God. In other words, the righteousness that allowed Jesus to enter into the presence of the Father is a righteousness that is given to us 
as the Spirit lives within us. And how exactly is it given to us? It's because the Spirit comes and doesn't just make a case for the work of Jesus, but rather the Spirit comes and applies the work of Jesus to us. The righteousness of Jesus given to us by the Spirit. And Paul goes on in verse 11, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give, you life, give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives within you. So because the Spirit lives in you, the resurrection power that Jesus experienced, the eternal life that Jesus experienced that death could not take away, is also ours. I mean, do you see that all the hope that flows from the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is applied to you by the Spirit of Christ when we trust his advocacy? This is what we call union with Christ. It's the idea that the Spirit unifies us to Jesus so that that which belongs to Jesus becomes ours now. All the blessings, all the treasures that are due to Jesus because of his perfection are now ours by the work of the Spirit. Our salvation is not possible without the work of Jesus on our behalf, his life, his death, and resurrection. But it's also not possible without the application of that work by the Spirit for those who believe. And so the question for all of us is, whose case do we believe? Do we believe the case of the world that would seek to convince us of a particular understanding of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Or do we believe the case of the advocate, the one who is presenting to us a particular understanding of sin, our, our sin, our unrighteousness, the judgment that is to come, but also to convince us of the Savior who is accomplishing a great work so that we might become the righteousness of God? experiencing all the blessings that are due Jesus as we trust in him. Our salvation is not possible without both the work of Jesus and also the work of the Spirit. And so my question again would be, whose case do we believe? You know, if you've never believed the Spirit's advocating voice, I do pray that you would today. The voice that, that, that is in front of you now not my voice, the Spirit's voice. I pray that you would trust it. Maybe you have trusted that voice, but over the course of life, you've struggled to continue believing that voice. And you've been allured by the advocacy of the world once again. If that's you, I pray that you would return to Jesus and again trust that advocating voice because the Spirit is calling all of us to trust him more deeply to believe more deeply in what Jesus has accomplished for us so that, again, we might experience the fullness of life that comes by the work of Jesus that is applied by the work of the Spirit. I pray that we all would experience it more deeply even now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sending of your Son who accomplishes a great work in his perfect life, his sufficient death, and in the power of his resurrection. We also thank you for the sending of the Spirit that convinces us of our need for that work, but that as we believe, applies that work 
so that our sin is dealt with on the cross. Our righteousness is no longer a righteousness that uh, we attempt to create, but it's rather a righteousness that is given to us by Jesus so that we might experience the same resurrection power that Jesus experienced. All of this, a work of your spirit. I pray that we would have a very real, tangible sense of your spirit with us, making much of Jesus in our lives. I pray that it would give us great comfort and hope, and that that real sense would also make us a people that live in light of the work that's been accomplished on our behalf. We thank you. We thank you for this work that we can't fully comprehend and is yet nonetheless so real for those who believe. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.